The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, so exciting to continue our series in a new chapter, and I just love hearing from that man. He's a longtime uh, missionary vet and one who... Uh, I think we should have just flipped and let him preach this sermon. Let me do the intro. Charlie Stoner is one of our elders, and it's just uh, really cool just to hear his short insights, and uh, really glad to have him around in our church as a leader. Uh, so we're looking at uh, Psalm 139 today, and uh, the title is Our Ridiculously Amazing God. And uh, before we get into it too much, uh, I really want to remind you guys that uh, we have our crossover camp beginning a week from tomorrow. So we always make sure that basketball camp comes right on the heels of impact so we can get the word out and get the kids excited over in the East Temple area about this camp. And so if you're interested in volunteering, it's a three-day basketball camp and uh, you don't need to be Kevin Durant or Steph Curry or any of those even legends like Jordan. Uh, You just need to have a heart for kids a willingness to come out and just uh, spend some time with them on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, even if you can only come one or two days. uh, There's a sign-up on the Hub if you'd like to help out with that. It'd be awesome. We appreciate those who already signed up from last week. So we're looking at Psalm 139, and uh, maybe coming on the heels of last week's sermon, uh, we heard from Philippians 2, and uh, we basically learned how all of us are pretty much losers when it comes to being humble, right? Uh, at least myself and maybe a few of my friends, uh, maybe some of you have that down. But we also were reminded that it's a great place to be because we have the ultimate winner in the humility department as our savior. We have God's word to equip us and we have the spirit to guide us. So throughout Psalm 139, we, we see a level of humility as well in the psalmist David As he proclaims this meditation, we get this front row seat to his meditation of what God has done and is doing in his life. You know, it's interesting that Psalm 139 begins and ends with a searching by God. You know, I've read this psalm countless times, and I really didn't notice before this past week the bookend of the searching by God. If you look at verse one, it actually says here in verse one, there is a searching, right? Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. But if you go in the last two verses, he asked God to search him again. So it shows us this continued searching. Uh, it's an interesting uh, a point that one of the commentators made that contrary to the pagan culture around him, who often thought their gods were opposed or even indifferent to a person, David actually displayed a deep relationship and interchange with God. And so here it is, this searching, this continual asking to search me. This past week, we spent uh, in New Braunfels training our young people, our 7th through 12th graders for impact, which starts tomorrow in case you didn't know or didn't hear. Uh, be in prayer for that all week. But it's, it's an exciting time, this training camp. And, and as I was going around and, and just uh, getting a little time away, I put Psalm 139 on the audio version of the the Holy Bible app. And if you don't know about that audio version, it's amazing because you may have it going and it just keeps going. You start in one chapter and I was just doing my thing. So I listened for five or six more chapters after this one. 
And in that app, as I listened, it was interesting what happened. I found it interesting that David acknowledges and meditates on God's amazing power and his amazing love, and he does this before addressing the dark times he is facing in the following chapters. If you look beyond Psalm 139, it's really dark for David. It's really difficult, and even before Psalm 139, it's difficult for David. What a simple yet powerful practice for us to adopt. Focusing on God's goodness, his love, his mercy, his grace, as we go through difficulty to pause and take a break maybe from the, the depression or take a break from these thoughts that are overwhelming us, that consume us, the, the difficulties of the day or the, the tough uh, family trouble you're going through or even sickness and illness and, and just to stop and reflect on the goodness of God like David does here in his meditation song. I've been rereading a, a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and if you haven't read it yet, pick it up and read it. Maybe make it your summer reading. It's an amazing, challenging book. Providentially, like usual, God had me come across the particular section as I got ready for this chapter. He has a section in page 85 uh, that talks all about this chapter. There's no coincidences with God, and it just, I came across it literally two weeks ago. In this section, he discusses this question, how may we form a right idea of God's greatness? How can we take our human understanding and our limited perspective and really see God for who he is? And he gives two things that we can do. Number one, we can remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. Now, God is not small, and God is not fit, does not fit in a box, but oftentimes our thoughts about God are small, and we do limit him, and we do uh, put him in a box and say, well, God can't do this. He, he did this, but he can't do that, which is pretty ridiculous, even if it, you hear it said out loud. He rose from the dead, Right? So we remove these thoughts and then we compare him with power and forces which we regard as great. And David does this all over his writings, right? Whether it's the cliffs, the mountains, whether it's the ocean, all these different things, the stars, the sky. Maybe we can adopt this habit of really seeing God in a greater way by even seeing his power in creation and seeing things that are greater than us, more powerful than us. When I was getting beat up by those waves in the Pacific Ocean two weeks ago, I could really feel God's power, right? I could feel him and his strength. So we put ourselves in position to show ourselves that we are small, we are weak, we are frail, and God is great. Before we get too deep in this chapter, I think it's also highly important to acknowledge that many of us, including myself, have made this chapter all about us. We've made it about how amazing we are that we're loved by God and created by God and formed and knitted that we're gonna see here in a minute. We've made this kind of a, a love chapter to ourselves when in reality, we miss the point of what David, the main point of what he's saying in this chapter is that God is ridiculously 
amazing. If you look at the Hebrew in, in, in the first six verses, you actually look at the Hebrew, that, the word that's used for you, and it's focusing, the emphasis is not on the me or the my, the emphasis in the grammar is on the you. And the you is Yahweh. The you is God. So we come to this passage in all of God's greatness and thankful that he chooses to be personal and loving to us even though we don't deserve it. So let's get into it. Verse one through six, we'll read first. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hands upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So we see here in these first six verses that God knows our actions, our thoughts, our patterns of behavior, our speech, and even our need for protection. He knows all these things. And we're going to look here at four characteristics of God found in Psalm 139. The first one is God's knowledge. That he is omniscient, the property of having complete, maximal knowledge. There is nothing that he doesn't know. There is nothing that surprises him. J.I. Packer points out, I can hide my heart, my past, and my future plans from those around me, but I cannot hide anything from God. I can talk in a way that deceives my fellow creatures as to what I really am, but nothing I say or do can deceive God. He has complete knowledge. We have the ability to know God and this knowledge through spending time in his word. Psalm 119 is all about God's knowledge and what he knows. And verse 105 is a great one that says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We get to know God and we get to see him through his word. Verse four uh, helps us understand uh, that God knows everything we say. I don't know about you. Pause, extremely convicting, right? But he knows every word before I say it. So we need to understand he has great knowledge of us. He has great care of us. Verse five, uh, he talks about hemming me in behind and before. And you know, David was a shepherd, right? And David being a shepherd often references uh, being a shepherd in his writings. And here uh, we have a picture of a shepherd hemming his sheep in. And and you have this this pen, so to speak, that people as they grazed with their sheep, the sheep came along and they went into this pen for the night. And you had the good shepherd who would lay down at the door, right? And it reminds us of John chapter 10, who Jesus is described as the good shepherd, hemming us in behind and before, and that nothing can get at us apart from Jesus, the good shepherd, allowing it. No one has access without going through the good shepherd first. You know, we live in a world that needs a lot of explanation, right? When my family and I are hanging out, you know, Candace and the kids, we're hanging out and we come to something, and especially as we get older, it happens more often, where it's like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know what, whatever it is, my youngest is asking me about Legos or Ninjago or whatever it is that he's going after. And I'm like, well, what do we do when we don't know anything? What do we do? Anybody have an answer? 
We Google it, right? We Google it. And so we all want uh, this endless knowledge that somehow Google provides. I don't know how even when I'm thinking about it, it just appears on my phone in an ad. It's really weird, but we Google it, right? And when I thought about this, I'm reminded, I was reminded of how I really want to have everything explained. I want to have all the answers, even for my kids. I don't want them to know that I don't know anything, right? So you Google it on the side and they're like, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, and act like you're smart. Uh, we want to know, we want to have all the answers, but David here in this passage reminds us that there's some things that are just too wonderful and amazing for us to understand. And it's God's design. God wants us there. He wants us in a place where we see him as our father that we don't know, that we can't comprehend, and we don't understand. And here is David. His knowledge and presence are masterfully described. God's knowledge and presence are masterfully described in Job 38. Uh, Job is going through such a difficult time, lost his family, lost his land, lost his cattle. And Job is going through this devastating time and his friends come along to assist him and accuse him of doing something to deserve all these things. Uh, it's just wonderful friends he had. Uh, but in Job 38, Job starts questioning God, and his friends, of course, are questioning Job. And you can look at 38 to 41 to really see God and his power come alive through Scripture. But look at, listen to verse 4 through 7. Here's the Lord answering Job out of the whirlwind. I mean, the whirlwind's bad enough, right? And then you hear a voice coming out of it. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God reminds Job, and David is reminded of God's power, and we are reminded today that God is more powerful than we could ever imagine. And sometimes we just need to be in a place where David was and just be in awe with no complete explanation, just be in awe. This is the state that we will be in except the explanation will be given, but we will be in awe even into eternity. Every day of our eternal existence, we will be in awe of who God is and what he's done. So we've seen his knowledge and presence and it's, We've seen knowledge and then we go into his presence here next. God's presence in verse seven through 12. The idea of being omnipresent is characteristic of God. There's no place where God's presence does not extend. Let's look at verse seven through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overcome me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. And these powerful words, just reading them is almost enough. It's like, I wish I could just, I'm just gonna read them and sit down. And you're like, okay, we can move on. But, you know, maybe we can look a little deeper. See, the Hebrew word for from your presence here, I'm gonna butcher the, na- the word, but it's mipaneka, which literally means from your faces. So when he says here, from your presence, 
It's not a singular usage of the word. It's an interesting thing that we come across in scripture, especially in the Old Testament, even going back to Genesis and creation, that plural forms are used. Why is that? Because of the Trinity. Because God, Jesus, and the Spirit were there at creation, and even here as he's speaking, from your face, from your presence, is actually literally from your faces, plural. This isn't an accident, it's intentional. He's speaking to God as plural. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, we see it throughout scripture. Charles Spurgeon describes God's presence this way. The presence of God's glory is in heaven, the presence of his power on earth, the presence of his justice in hell, and the presence of his grace with his people. So as David speaks so eloquently in various extremes, he brings us back to the root of what we know, that God's hand will lead us and hold us. I love those statements there. His hand shall lead me. Back in the day, way back in the day when Candace and I were dating, uh, we went to Liberty University and that's where we met. And we, uh, we started dating there and it was coming up on the fall and uh, in the fall you have this, at Liberty they have this thing called Scare Mare. And it was basically a haunted house. This crazy haunted house is really well done by the students. And there were over 30,000 people that would go through this scare mare every year. And it was kind of uh, hokey. It was like, you know, just freak you out. And then it was really weird. At the end, uh, you actually went down a slide. And at the end of the slide, out of this abandoned warehouse, there were tents where people could be scared so much that they wanted Jesus. Uh, It was a really interesting way to to help people see their sin and their need. Uh, I wouldn't promote it personally or put one on. But it happened and we were there. So very interesting. Uh, Some of you have been at some of those things, I'm sure, uh, and written the cards uh, about how scared you were and how you didn't want to go to hell. So uh, here we are in the middle of this hallway and you can't see your hand in front of your face. And it was very convenient for me. I'm just dating Candace at the time, right? And so it's very dark and she's screaming her head off and uh, so is everybody else. Uh, And... Here we are in this dark hallway, so what does she do? She reaches her hand out, right? Hey, I want to make sure you're there because I, I feel other things around me and it was convenient for me. Hey, we're holding hands now, right? And uh, we're, I'm leading her out the door where I really don't know where I'm going either, but, uh, <clears throat> but here we are. And it reminded me when I was thinking about this, your hand will lead me because it wasn't just that someone's hand, because anybody's hand could have led her out there. A guide that was employed by the, the organization putting this on could have led her out, right? But it was, it was a hand of someone who was, that loved her, a hand of someone that cared for her, a hand that would lead her to safety. And so it's one of those things that's a little deeper. And this is what he's saying in this moment, your hand will lead me, is not just any old hand. This is a trust. This is a care. This is a love that is growing between David and his father. And then he continues on and goes even deeper with his hand analogy, your right hand shall hold me. I remember so vividly uh, when our first child was born, Sydney, which is crazy to think she's going to be a senior this year. Wow. 
Uh, and so I remember when she was born and I remember being almost scared to hold her. Like I've held other kids in the, in the nursery before uh, growing up. And uh, I remember uh, just, she's so tiny and I'm afraid I'm gonna break her or drop her. And, and so I remember holding her and that night she got indoctrinated uh, as a little Eagles fan, as you can see. It was the Bears were playing the Eagles in the playoffs. It was Monday night football and the Eagles won, fortunately. Uh, but uh, here she is in her little bib. And uh, I just remember, okay, I'm holding her, watching the game, and then I pass her back to Candace. And as I read this uh, right-hand shahomi, it made me think, you know, when I, when I gave her back, it's, it's the holding of a dad. Now, some of you dads may be way more comforting than me. But the holding of a dad, of a baby, their own child, and a holding of a mom, two vastly different things. And as I've gone on in my time and three more children down the road and watching Candace in this special, warm, protecting and inviting holding of her babies, there's something about being held by your mother. And this, to me, is the holding that David's almost describing, where it's just this special. Not this like almost, not sterile. I mean, I held my kids tight, but I just didn't want to squeeze them too hard. And I mean, just felt awkward sometimes and they start squirming. And, but for a mom, it's just something special. And so for him to say, your, your right hand uh, shall hold me is just something different. It just hits different when David says it. And then he says, surely the darkness shall cover me. So he understands, look, this is happening. Verse 11, we see David's going through struggles. David was facing enemies, threats, even death on all sides. I imagine him recollecting his time hiding out in dark caves, you know, hearing water drip in the darkness, and it's completely black, and here's David hiding from his enemies. But even in these moments, the darkness was nothing for his great God. Darkness didn't mean a thing. The darkness was like light to him. In these moments, we see both his great knowledge and presence of God, and then we can look at his detailed design, the third characteristic. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When I was yet, there was none of them. These graphic words painting an amazing picture of God's design, his detailed design. When we look at the word formed, we can see that it shows us that God took great care and interaction with us even at conception. Before we were even breathing out on our own that God is caring for us in the womb. The idea that we're knitted and intricately woven this Hebrew word for woven is an interesting one. It emphasizes the master craftsmanship of someone who does embroidery or, or needlework. And it's not just the sheer amount of hours because there could be people that spend tons of time on a project that's needlework and embroidery and it looks like garbage, right? 
So it's not just a massive amount of time because uh, we see here with God, creation, he's spoken into existence, but it's still so detailed. You just look at your own body and see how the design is just amazing, this beautiful design. He goes on to say that we're wonderfully made and these words specifically mean that we are to be distinct, we're marked out, we're separated, we are distinguished that he has a plan for our lives, we are wonderfully made. And then I absolutely love these connecting statements here. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. It wasn't just David observing the amazing things God had done, the amazing power of God, his knowledge and his presence. This was a personal thing and he says very well. It's kind of interesting that he mentions that. You know, for me, even as I get older, as I reflect, and even as I wake up, this kind of, this verse just continues to echo in my head. And and I love it when it says, my soul knows it very well, because as I've lived longer and longer and longer, my soul knows it more deeply. Some of you are just starting out in your relationship with God. And maybe you know it to a certain extent, But some of you are deep into this relationship and your soul knows this very well. That he loves you. That you're wonderfully made. You're knitted, intricately woven. How amazing is this as we think about God's care for the unborn. God's care and love for those who are not yet out of the womb. And how we can do the same and speak up for those who don't have a voice for themselves. Now I really wanted to understand these details and instead of just Googling it, uh, like I said I always do, uh, I, instead I reached out to a friend. This man, uh, Dr. Russ Fothergill, was in on two of our four kiddos' births, including basically saving my wife's life after one of our children were born. So he's the first person that came to my mind when I thought about, huh, let me get some more details here about what's going on in this, this being knitted and intricately woven. Let's look at an expert and hear what he has to say. So I'm gonna read a couple paragraphs and this is straight from his mouth uh, to you. And I edited some of it, just pulled some out just because we didn't have time. But I want you to hear, even though this is long, I really want you to hear what he has to say. The biology of human reproduction and development is complex and intricate. To think that an entire human body composed of trillions of cells could start with just two cells is fascinating. Research has suggested that interactions and communications between the mother and her infant play an important role in child development. This attachment is well documented after delivery, but newer studies suggest that it starts much earlier, even at the onset of mother learning she is pregnant. So the interactions between a fetus and its mother are clearly important for the human development that starts at conception. But there is a vastly more important connection in our lives and it starts much earlier. The psalmist states clearly that the Lord is responsible for knitting together the amazing and intricate physical creation that we become. We know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made in verse 14 and that the design is perfect because we are made in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. As we scan a little farther down Psalm 139, we also see the psalmist proclaim that God saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, verse 16. 
God knows everything about our existence. He knew us before we were ever conceived. He knew us when we were formed in the womb. He knows every detail of our life and what we will become. Thus, we can see that the attachment that we have with our mothers in utero is clearly important for our human life and development. However, it is our attachment to God that sustains us spiritually and is the most important relationship in our lives. And as we must be born into this world, we must be born again into eternal life through Jesus' death and resurrection in John 3, 3. What powerful words that explain and help us understand this relationship and how important it is even beyond this tight relationship we often have with our moms. As I discussed this passage specifically with my wife, she gave some great insight, like always. Uh, She said that this passage helps us see that great care and love of God before we were known to the world all the way through the end of our days being numbered. It's all the way back before we were even known to our days being numbered in the end of our lives. This shows us both the extreme value of life in the womb and life after birth as well. We've seen these three characteristics. Let's look at the fourth, which is God's loving personal nature in verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Alexander McLaren says, the root meaning of the word rendered precious is weighty. The singer would weigh God's thoughts toward him and find that they weigh down his scales. You picture like just things being placed on an old school scale and it's just these things being placed on it, on it and just piled up and it's like this scale is almost just broken because of God's thoughts, his loving personal nature. And these aren't just thoughts, but the key word being precious. These thoughts of God toward his people, toward you are precious thoughts. Oftentimes we end up beating ourselves up over things, which is is a form of coming to repentance because we're convicted, right? We're convicted that we are, like last week, losers in the area of humility and in other areas of our lives, and we're beat up by that, right? But oftentimes we stay in the area of being beaten up. But instead of coming to this realization of what, G- what David is talking about with God is that we're forgiven, that we have precious thoughts our way from God the Father, that he's not just up there looking for us, just waiting for us to screw up and step on us like a bug, that God cares for us. His thoughts to us are precious, loving And so we see this exemplified in these verses. And even he says, I am awake and I am still with you. As you wake up, one of the first things you can do to meditate on the fact that God is with you. What a great thing to start your day with is to know that he is with you and he is reminded of this. So after exclaiming God's knowledge, presence, and detailed design, and his loving and personal nature, David jumps in an extreme request regarding his enemies. If you look at this passage uh, in this chapter, it almost feels out of place. Like, you read it and you're like, wow, that escalated quickly. Look at verse 18, or verse 19. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So you read in these precious thoughts, they outnumber the sin and how we were woven in the womb and then all of a sudden, whoa, David, where in the world did you go with this? Like it just took a turn, <laughs> really dark turn. But if you take this passage and if you just take this out, it really doesn't seem to go together. But if you look at the chapters surrounding this one and David's life in general, you understand his enemies were continually lurking, scheming, and planning his demise. So it was always on his brain, even reflecting on the goodness of God in the back of his mind. He's still thinking, oh, my enemies, they're, they're there. They're right around the corner trying to kill me again. So what do we do with David's request for utter annihilation of the wicked and his hatred toward them? One thing that we can understand is when we read the Psalms, it's important for us to understand that just because a request is made, it does not necessarily reflect what God desires or what he'll actually do. This is a request from a sin-filled human who is expressing rather bluntly what he thinks should happen. So it's important for us to read the Psalms that way, where it's not just, all right, we get to destroy the wicked, right? (laughs) So let's take them all out. This is David in his distress, David in his emotion, David in his anger for his enemies. The conclusion of the chapter shows us that even David understands that this perspective that he just shared and the desires thereof are a little flawed. What a great example of how we should approach conflict and difficulty. He finishes up with these words, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How many of our issues with others would be better handled and resolved if we first asked God to search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting? How many of our questions about our past, present, and our future could be answered if we seriously ask God this on a daily basis? God, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How much closer would our walk with our Father and how amazing would our light be to the world if we took this statement and made it our continual motto throughout the day? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. God, we're so, so very thankful for this chapter and I know, God, I did not do it justice in this short period of time. But God, your word is powerful. And as we just read these words of meditation and love, and care, and grace, and judgment, and power, Lord, we're blown away. You are a ridiculously amazing God. And we come before you this morning recognizing you as the one who put us here on earth 
that you counted our days, they're numbered before we even came out of our mother's womb. God, today, even in this time as we wrap things up, God, I pray that everyone here will understand your love. Maybe they haven't experienced your love in a deep and personal way yet, and maybe even now in their seat, God, that you'll do a work in their heart to convict them of their sin, to help them to see that you've sent your son Jesus to pay the price for their sin. Help them even now to call upon your name for salvation and a new life in you. Lord, for us, Lord, right now that know you, I pray that you will search us and know our thoughts. Help us to see any grievous way in us. Please, God, lead us in the way everlasting in the middle of a broken world, a messed up world. I pray, God, that we will go out and be lights of this great love that we've just read about this great care and compassion that we will show that to a lost and dying world around us. Bless us as we go this week, especially for the students as they head out to share this precious love. God, there's so many kids in our community that don't experience this love. And I pray, God, that this week that these kids that hear the message of the gospel will experience this love in a way that they've never experienced before, that they will come to know you as their Savior. Empower these kids and these leaders. Empower us as we go throughout our week in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities to show this great, precious, amazing love of God that you've given to us. In your name we pray, amen.